0: Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. Okay, so, my father, he told me early on. See, boy, your little white friends, they think life is fun and games. Uh Uh-huh. But not you. This ain't a game. Understand, your life is war. And to fight this war, you have first to train your mind to see the possibilities. You always have to be two steps ahead. But Popsy had my attention. And he pulls out a chessboard. The only way to win this contest is to stay that two steps ahead of your opponent. To make them compete on your field. Not the other way around. So I started playing this ancient game, this game of kings, of emperors. But slowly... first I learned to lose I hate to lose but I really hate to lose quickly so I learned to spot my father's traps then I learned to anticipate his next move and finally I attempt to peer over the horizon I try to see two moves ahead the queen, the knight, the bishop, even the pawn, they all make sense to me. I can anticipate where they might go, what the ramifications and repercussions of the dance might be. Then I go to school and I play chess against my friend Matt. I have trained to beat him. By thinking two moves ahead. But instead. Of me whipping him. Matt whips me. I stare. At the remainder of my army. My king bent in defeat. And I ask him. How? How did you do that? And he tells me. That he always tries to think. Three moves ahead. So I try again. Three moves ahead, I will think four. And sometimes, I can beat men. And I go about my life, occasionally playing this game, reminding myself to think ahead. And two weeks ago, two weeks ago, I had the insomnia. Three in the morning, I leave. I walk to go get a donut. Because I'm insane and I never have been to the donut shop at 3 in the morning. Colonial Donuts at Lakeshore Avenue in Oakland. And there's a line, yo. A line, crazy. Bunch of rough-looking characters. Leather, big fellas, scowling. It takes me a moment to realize what they're scowling at. Not at me. At chessboards half a dozen set up in the donut shop at three in the morning but these they have the timers and you have to make your move in just a few seconds and this guy he sees me looking he motions towards the board and he says 20 bucks and I'll take that bet because what this clown doesn't know is I think four moves ahead he wipes The board with me. How'd you do that? Man, you're up in your head. You're trying to think too much. You have to see the board. Look at the board. We play again. Look at the board. And he beats me again. But for a moment, for a brief nanosecond, I do see it. The board itself. I see the power. I see the fault lines. I see the weaknesses. And I see it. And today on Snap Judgment, perhaps you will see it too. From WNYC, we proudly present Gambit. Amazing stories from real people. My name is Gwen Washington. If you're going to eat donuts at three in the morning, play chess while you're doing so. Listening, 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 listening to snap judgment snap now then there's a word for songs that won't leave your head songs like old town road and Umbrella, the summer of 69 Songs you can't help but find yourself Humming from time to time They're called earworms and For a lot of musicians, this is the goal Create an earworm You will have musical Immortality And today, producer John Facile He brings us a story of a musician Who wrote a song so catchy So irresistible, so happy That it took over the world Every artist's dream Right? Sure. Until so this gift to humanity, it's twisted into something that he never imagined. Snap judgment. Now this story does contain explicit language. Sensitive listeners are advised.
1: Uh, First of all, I was 36 years old. Which is old, you know, when you're 18 and you want to be a rock star. Like, you're not thinking about yourself when you're 36.
2: It's 2012, and Jim Bianco is driving back from a 10-day meditation retreat in New York.
1: It sounds corny, but I highly recommend it to anyone. It was during the meditation retreat that I realized that I was at the end of an arc, and I wanted to start a new arc.
2: Jim is a professional singer-songwriter, but music is no longer paying the bills— So he decides to propose to his girlfriend and settle down. And while he's driving, hand on the wheel, feeling peaceful and content about his choice, a melody works its way into his head.
1: You know, you're a songwriter. Songs come to you sometimes. This song showed up as sort of a jazz song. And it was in my head. I was driving and I didn't have any instruments. So I was just thinking of it. One easy street and it feels so sweet. And the world is but a treat When you're on easy street Obviously the song just captures like You've got no problems anymore The rest of your life is set You've got nothing to worry about forever We all know that's not true But the concept of that was just so lovely
0: We're on easy street Street. Yeah, and it feels so sweet
1: It felt like I was in an optimistic part of my life, and the song reflected that. I did not know or could never conceive that this song could go to a place that was so dark.
2: Jim first records a pop version of the song. It's bright and catchy and features singer Petra Hayden. But he doesn't release it.
1: I ended up just kind of shelving the song.
2: He gives this version of the song to a licensing company, and it just sits on their hard drive.
1: And I leave it there. Over the course of the next couple years, my new wife and I move to Nashville, Tennessee. We get pregnant. And I start flipping houses.
2: Rehabbing old homes and selling them. Then, four years later, he gets a call.
1: The Walking Dead wanted to use my song, Easy Street. In one of their episodes.
2: The Walking Dead. A show about a zombie apocalypse and the terrible things that human beings do to each other afterward. Also, one of the highest rated TV shows of all time.
1: Yes, I thought it was weird that that violent, crazy show would use a happy, goofy song like mine. But I did not imagine what the use would be, even though, to be fair, it was totally detailed in the deal that they sent me. I just literally didn't read it.
2: The episode airs just two days before the 2016 election. In it, one of the main characters, Daryl,
1: has been captured by an
2: authoritarian group.
1: It was in like a torture chamber. You know, it was locked in the dark. And they were playing this song, my song, the super happy chipper song over and over, it was a montage over days. And they played my song nine times in a row for what turns out to be 35 million people.
3: That fucking song again?
1: Walking
2: Dead fans post their reactions on YouTube.
3: This is actually so messed up. Oh my
0: God, dude, shut this fucking song up. It's driving me fucking crazy.
1: I didn't take it as a negative thing, to be honest with you. I thought it was funny.
0: You know what? Easy straight, and fuck off.
1: I was in Nashville with a hammer in my hand, demoing walls and doing radio interviews all over the country. And they all wanted me to hate it. Wow, they're using your song to torture someone because it's so happy and annoying. I remember one guy asking me, what's it like to write the most hated song in America? And my snarky reply was, it can't be that hated. It's number six on iTunes right now.
2: Easy Street trends on Twitter. It hits number one on the Spotify viral chart. YouTube is flooded with covers: a piano version, an acapella version, a hair metal version, multiple ukulele versions.
1: I was receiving videos from all over the world. Specifically, I remember this: like mom, maybe even a grandma. I don't know. Some woman in her 50s singing.
2: Easy Street. Oh yeah.
1: That to me was a moment where I was like, "This has gotten out of my control." This is no longer up to me, whatever happens with the song.
2: Not all of the videos are fun like this. Two young men lock themselves in tiny rooms and listen to the song for 10 hours straight. I went through hell, dude. I'm going to cry right now. My God, that's miserable. Um, please leave a like, share um, this video, get it around. Please make, please have not made, I can't even talk. But things don't get really out of control until almost two years later. Flash forward. Thanks to Easy Street, Jim is able to give up flipping houses. He and his family move to Los Angeles, where he gets work writing songs for film and TV.
1: That's my life now. That's my second act.
2: Then, someone sends him a tweet from an account belonging to Occupy Ice PDX an activist group in Portland, Oregon.
4: For about 11 days now, protesters have camped at the entrance to the Immigration and Customs Enforcement Facility at Portland South Waterfront. You can still see
3: this encampment and many tents that are still up here this morning. There
1: was a video was in the tweet, and it said, ICE has been playing children's music at us for the last 12 hours. And I'm wondering why, why somebody pointed me to this tweet, and I click on the video,
2: In the video, Jim can see a line of tents next to a nondescript building with a high metal fence.
1: And they're playing Easy Street. Over and over and over again.
2: In the summer of 2018, protesters set up camp outside ICE headquarters in Portland. They were there to protest the separation of families at the border, and there were about 100 tents. It was quite an operation.
4: We had a medicinal herb garden, vegetables, sunflowers, because sun melts ice. One day,
2: Department of Homeland Security officers set up big gray speakers behind their high metal fence.
3: So it's late morning or early afternoon when I first hear the opening notes of the song, Easy Street.
4: And the song is blasting. It's loud to the point that I can feel the vibration. And I'm thinking, this won't be good for the flowers.
5: All I can think is like, is is this us? Are Are we playing music? Some of the protesters
2: started dancing along.
3: It seems very playful. It seems like this very... Just sort of fun, lighthearted, <laughs> playful, bouncy, we're on easy street. Dancy type of song.
5: Cause the world is but a treat when you're on Easy Street.
3: It doesn't seem like anything insidious. It doesn't seem like anything that could be used to torment people. It just seems very lighthearted. It only got bad when it was just kept looping. <laughs>
2: Remember, this is exactly how the song was used on The Walking Dead. Playing music on repeat like this is a military tactic that has been used to torture prisoners at Guantanamo Bay. And here it was being deployed against nonviolent protesters on public land in the middle of Portland. At first, it didn't seem to work. I thought it was really funny. That's what I thought, it was just
5: really ridiculous.
4: We never forgot the families at the border playing this cute little song over and over and over and over again is nothing compared to what they are doing to people where we can't see.
6: It's 12.40 a.m. The officers are blaring this song since 2 p.m.
5: As we were trying to fall asleep, it got a lot more annoying.
6: This is, you know, where taxpayer money is going.
3: Things start getting fuzzy. Things start getting fuzzy because the music just keeps playing and it just won't stop. I don't know what it is
4: about the notes or the melody, but it kind of worms its way into your brain. It becomes mind-numbing. You can't really get clear thoughts established after a while.
3: There were definitely some people having panic attacks. Just people that, you know, coming up crying, like that they they couldn't sleep. I hear someone say, shut
4: the fuck up, screaming at the speaker.
3: I just start feeling ill after a while of just listening to it over and over. And I remember just needing to leave. (laughs) I had to leave that day. I couldn't take it. When
4: the music stopped and the sound of silence was so deafening it was almost as blaring as when it started to this day when i hear that song at the end i hear that
2: deafening silence the song was played for at least 10 hours the protesters in portland were also tackled and shot with pepper balls which are like paintballs but full of pepper spray. Officers propped up cardboard cutouts of human figures in the windows of the ICE building, Home Alone style. They also posted snipers on their roof and blasted the camp with spotlights. And they played Metallica and Ice Ice Baby and the sounds of dogs barking over their speakers. So look, I'm working on this story that deals with the use of a particular song. A government spokesperson uh, said that the use of Easy Street had been unintentional. Is that the the on-the-record answer? Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. That officers outside the building had simply been listening to that song on repeat for that long.
1: My song was used in a malicious way to hurt people. As an artist, you hope to create things that affect people's lives. And this is not what I imagined when I thought that I would be an artist creating things.
2: Jim sent a cease and desist to the Department of Homeland Security to get them to stop playing Easy Street. A few weeks later, he got a letter back.
1: Thank you for your letter of July 27th, 2018. Without acknowledgement or admission of copyright infringement, we can confirm that DHS will not reproduce, distribute, or publicly perform Easy Street. Should you have any remaining concerns about this matter, please do not hesitate to contact me. So on and so forth. We're saying that we did it and we won't do it again. That's what they're saying.
2: After 38 days, Portland police broke up the camp. There was a rally afterwards, and a few of the protesters decided to make Easy Street their anthem.
4: Someone was driving with a truck open to the back, filled with speakers, and one of the songs that they were playing was Easy Street.
2: I'm gonna give you some advice.
3: It's time to melt the ice Someday they'll pay the price When we all take the streets
2: God, And of course, it wasn't long before the protesters recorded their own version of Easy Street, featuring rewritten lyrics, and a horn section, and a bagpipe. Easy Street is a real place now. Well, kind of. One of the protesters renamed the bike path outside ICE headquarters on Google Maps.
5: I went on Google Maps and held down, and it said, like, rename road. So I just kept renaming it to Easy Street.
2: But then, last October, as a few protesters were leaving a courthouse in downtown Portland, something else happened. A car drove by a silver Mustang the Mustang slowed down
4: someone inside was playing Easy Street and turned it up and looked at us and smiled one of the people that I was with who had been brutally arrested thrown to the ground when they heard that music playing it was just too much for them they kind of started to crumble and they started to cry
0: Thanks to Joe Civic for bringing this story to our attention, as well as producer Dina Pritchett. You can hear the full version of Easy Street, recorded by Occupy Ice PDX, on our website, snapjudgment.org. The original score for this piece was by Renzo Gorio. It was produced by John Facile. Now. After this short break, some kids you shouldn't pick on. On Snap Judgment, the Gambit episode continues. Stay tuned. Support for Snap Judgment comes from Odu. What is Odu? To learn more, visit odoo.com slash snap. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash snap. Welcome back to Snap Judgment, the Gambit episode. Our next story takes us to the early 1950s, San Francisco. And little Gus Lee is just a lost kid trying to figure out how to survive. Snap Judgment.
6: Every time little Gus Lee found himself in San Francisco's Chinatown, he'd begin a kind of frantic search.
7: I would uh, see a vague, fuzzy picture of a Chinese woman and for reasons I could not explain to myself, I would chase her. I would run after her. And I, I mean, I couldn't even articulate that I was looking for my mother. Uh, but that's what I was doing. Back then, I had no memory of her face.
6: It was 1952. Gus hadn't seen his mother for months.
7: I asked, Where's mommy? Where, where'd mommy go? And my sisters assured me that our mother had gone back to China to take care of her father, who was ill. And that she would return as soon as she could.
6: But then, he came home from school one day, and a new woman showed up at the apartment.
7: She's blonde. Lots of curves, like uh, movie actresses. She looked like someone that came out of a magazine.
6: She wasn't wearing the Chinese cheapo that his mother always wore. She had on a pillbox hat and a veil. She smelled like flowers.
7: And she was speaking, you know, the foreign language, uh, English. And I'm not sure what she said, but it was in a nice voice.
6: When Gus's father introduced her, he said to call her Miss Edith.
7: I remember she did something affectionate, like, you know, she touched my arm or she touched my face.
6: Edith and his father married soon after. And as soon as she came home... It seemed like the temperature in the house changed completely. Family heirlooms, good luck symbols, they all began to disappear from the apartment. So did pictures of Gus's mother. Under Edith, there was to be no mention of Gus's mom, no more Chinese spoken at home, and absolutely no Chinese food.
7: We are only going to have American food, and you're going to be an American. So everything was controlled. I had a one or a two-minute limit. She would time me, so I wouldn't speak Chinese in the bathroom.
6: Another one of Edith's rules: Gus was to be out of her sight. Even when school let out, he still wasn't allowed in the apartment.
7: I wasn't to ring the doorbell. I wasn't to knock on the door. I wasn't to yell up at her if I was in trouble. Actually, I could not come back until she would open an upper window and whistle, like for a dog.
6: So every day, Gus would be locked out and on the street. And the street was where he was most vulnerable. Gus was around seven at the time, but he was built like a five-year-old, and he acted like a three-year-old. He could barely speak English. And he happened to be the only Chinese kid in the neighborhood. They called him China Boy.
7: I had 20 over 900 vision, which is legally blind. Uh, I would walk into telephone poles. I couldn't street fight, and I couldn't play
6: sports. After school, he would try and hide, stay invisible, stay out of trouble.
7: And uh, then Big Jimmy would show up.
6: Big Jimmy Timms was the neighborhood bully, always on the lookout for more fresh meat.
7: Big Jimmy, he was Godzilla. Big boned, big head. I was terrified of him.
6: One day, Gus was playing in his usual spot
7: an alleyway on Golden Gate Avenue and that was my hideout space and I would uh, play with weeds and watch ants and hope no one bothered me.
6: He didn't see Big Jimmy's fist until it came out of nowhere.
7: Hey China boy crap for brains you got any coin for me? Where are you hiding your coin? Don't have nothing. Don't no have no have nothing. Leave 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 me alone. And uh, he hit me a couple more times until I went to the concrete. When I, I, I gathered my senses, I staggered towards the apartment. I rang the doorbell many times, and when there was no answer, I began pounding on the door itself. I was sobbing. The door finally opened. And there was Edith, and she said, What are you doing here? I told you not to come back. Go outside and play. Slam. I wasn't willing to go back on the street, so I stood on the stoop and huddled in the corner, hoping no one could see me for about three hours until she opened the door.
6: Every kid on the street learned how to hit to the face by practicing on Gus. So, eventually, a neighbor saw him get pounded and left in the street.
7: His name was Hector Villanueva. White short-sleeved shirt, big biceps, big triceps, bulging shoulders, narrow waist. uh, Looked like Captain America, with a sweet Chicano accent. And he says, Hey, Joven. These these kids they, they, they pound you, they, they they stuff you inside garbage cans. Uh, how come you don't fight back, man? Hey, you you come with me and he, he walked me to my apartment. He rings the doorbell, my dad shows up, and he says Mr Lee, you know me from the garage. Yes? Your boy, you're cloven here, you're Chico. Your nino, he's he's very quick, you know, but he can't fight. So you, you got to teach him boxeo. You, you got to teach him pugilato. You got to send him down to the YMCA boxing program to teach him how to save his life. You, you're going to look around one day and your boy, he gone. You go down to McAllister and there'll be this smudge. That used to be your son, man. And he says, you go save his life, YMCA. And then he rubbed the top of my head, and he smiled, and he walked away.
6: But Edith wasn't having it. She didn't want to spend so much money on Gus. That's when his dad said,
7: You should like it. He could be there five days a week, maybe even six. And there's, as I recall, this dead silence,
6: and it was like, really? It was a Saturday when he first went.
7: My father rode out... YMCA 220 Golden Gate on a placard on a string and he put it around my neck and he put me on the bus.
6: When Gus got off the bus, people on the street stopped to help the lost little boy with a placard tied around his neck. They took him to the front door of 220 Golden Gate.
7: I was led to the locker room. The junior leader found, lost and found gym clothes, uh, which uh, nothing fit. So I wore my scuffed up street shoes, uh, gigantic clown-like gym trunks, and a tank top. I actually tried putting the straps over my head, you know, so they wouldn't fall off.
6: In the gym, there were dozens of boys practicing boxing. There was an elevated boxing ring. And there was a gigantic man heading towards Gus.
7: And he has hair, I mean, hairy arms and hairy shoulders and hair coming out of the top of his shirt,
6: giant boulder-like head. This was Coach Tony. He walked him over to the punching bags.
7: And he says, just hit it. And I hit it, and I start to cry. Coach looked at me and said, not only is this kid not a boxer, he can't be an athlete, and I'm not sure he's a kid. I finally, you know stood up and said something like, no want to, no can, no can do. And he said something like, oh, crap, kid, you got some fight. Good.
6: Starting that day, Gus basically considered his coaches as his enemies. He didn't really understand why they were so insistent on forcing him to do these painful exercises or why they were so nice while doing it.
7: One of the ways that Coach Tony won my heart is he took me up to... Lola's YMCA cafeteria, and he fed me.
6: Lola played Gus with the full menu of American diner food. She made him bologna, then tuna fish sandwiches. She served up potato chips and milkshakes. A lot of milkshakes.
7: And then I knew I, I would follow him anywhere.
6: They had him lift weights, they fattened him up, and then they told him it was time. He was ready to go into the ring.
7: So I climbed into the ring I'm shaking. uh, The bell rings. Coach says, Go do it, kid. I get up. I walk towards center ring. And immediately after touching gloves, I sprinted for the ropes. I dove through the ropes. I forgot that it was an elevated ring. So I just smashed myself on the floor. I got up, ran for the stairs. And I ran directly into a wall. I was KO'd.
6: Coach wouldn't let Gus off the hook until he could land that first jab. As Gus got stronger, for the first time, people started to call him something other than China Boy. And after school one day, the most popular girl in class, Phyllis Green, came up to him. She called him Gus.
7: And I remember thinking, who's Gus? That's me. I hadn't heard a kid say Gus. She puts her arm in mine, and she says, now you walk me home.
6: What they didn't see was that Big Jimmy was walking behind them.
7: And with that gigantic, you know, 85-inch fist, he's uh, he's hit me in the back of the head.
6: And right in front of the prettiest girl in class... Gus suddenly found himself in a familiar position, face down, on the asphalt.
7: He proceeds to basically just kick me down the street.
6: Who do you think was worse, Edith or Big Jimmy?
7: Oh, Edith, clearly. Big Big Jimmy was my best friend compared to Edith. So I remember I was inside the bathroom attempting to remember Chinese. And I was counting to 10 in Mandarin. And I was remembering tones, and it was like I was recovering a life with my mother. I mean, the last time I spoke Chinese was with her. Edith slams open the door and screams, no Chinese words. No Chinese words in this house. And I said, when my mommy comes back, we speak Chinese again. And then she phoned Eleanor, my oldest sister, and she said, I want you to tell your brother where your mother is.
6: Edith handed Gus the phone. He thought Eleanor would say his mom was in Shanghai, or maybe Suzhou.
7: Instead, Eleanor said, Gus, uh, Chen Sun, our mother is in a cemetery in San Bruno. And then I knew. Eleanor would not lie to me. And uh, so I, I set my face. I think I swallowed very hard. And I know that Edith had been waiting for just the precise moment to crush me with the news that my mother was dead. I was back to my old self. I was depressed. I had been defeated.
6: The next time Gus showed up at the Y, he was still limping from his fight with Big Jimmy. His coaches asked him, what's wrong?
7: They forced it out of me. Kid, what's going on? I know I'm crying. I thought my mommy was coming back. And now I know mommy is dead. She was dead when I was five.
6: He told them everything about Edith locking him out of the house. And he told them about Big Jimmy Timms.
7: And he he picks on small kids. He pounds them. He's the one who took my shoes. And these three men are looking at me, and they look at each other. And they look concerned, which lifts my heart. Tony says, let's train him to beat the crap out of
0: this bully. In just a moment, Gus gets ready for his big fight. Stay tuned. WNYC Studios. You're listening to Snap Judgment, the Gambit episode. When last we left, Little Gus Lee was training to fight his bully, Big Jimmy. Coach says we're
7: taking a ride. Get in, and he immediately drives me right back because that's when Big Jimmy did his work. He was shooting buckets on the uh, the schoolyard
6: from the car. Coach Tony looked at Big Jimmy's footwork. He checked out his hand-eye coordination.
7: He says, uh, he's a boxer's dream, kid. He's awkward. He actually, he's not an athlete. He doesn't move like an athlete. He doesn't know balance. He's just a big, overweight thumper. He says, but, you know, kid, you're right. The, The guy's huge. Coach Lewis was the ring scientist and he's the one who asked me how much time do you need to prepare? And I said, three years. And there was a lot of laughter. And he said he said, how about two weeks? Cause then you know
6: when it's gonna happen. Gus had a fight plan. He had a boxing coach. And Coach Lewis knew all he needed now was a little fire in the belly. So he used the idea of his mom, his real mom.
7: And he, he points at me and he says, I don't think that this punk likes your mother. His giant finger pointing at me. And he says, I want you to remember that.
6: Because Gus was small and Big Jimmy was huge, Gus had to learn how to punch up.
7: Coach Tony... Uh, Faced me, and he said, okay, you got three minutes. I circled the bag. I went left. I went right. I made a complete 360. I kept my arms moving, punching the bag, whapping it up, up, up. By the end of the week, I could punch upward. Coach Lewis said, "Do they serve Navy beans in your cafeteria?
6: Beans messed with the gut, and boxers need to stay away from them before a fight.
7: And I nodded, and he said, what day? I said, Thursday. Your fight's going to be on Thursday, kid.
6: Gus was at the garage one day when Hector asked him if he knew how he was going to start the fight. And then he pulled out a jar full of tractor oil and carefully handed it to Gus. He told him that this jar would totally do the trick.
7: And you pour on his shoes. And his zapatos all over. This will distract him. He's going to be looking at his shoes. He's going to be really upset, you know?
6: And finally, the day of the fight arrived. The cafeteria served its pork and beans for lunch. Big Jimmy had a big helping. And then, before Gus knew it, it was the end of the school day.
7: I heard the bell. And the bell was just like, it's like the boxing ring bell. Ding and I position myself with the sun at my back and this mass starts coming out. It's the kids. I see this bobbing shape above the mass, and I know I know it's him. So I, I, I picked up the jar and I loosened it. He's looking at me the way I think you look at a lamb chop. His shoes, his PF Flyers, man, they're right in front of me. And I took real good aim, and I got most of the gunk directly on his uh, left foot. And I said, "Hey, hey, 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 Big Jimmy, your shoes, they ugly. He roared. I went into my stance, and... He's swearing at me, which is good. This is all part of the fight plan. He had one punch. I mean, you could see it coming, and you could you could deflect it, which I did. And I punched up, and I hit his throat, and I hit it pretty good. I, I was delivering blows as hard as I could to his midsection, and. I know he hit me very, very hard on the left arm because the left arm went numb. He was grasping and swinging and trying to clear his throat. The fight was basically over. And I was gassed. And it's like my ears popped. I was aware of kids yelling and there was a lot of noise.
6: That's when one of the other kids came up behind Big Jimmy and pushed him back into the fight driving Big Jimmy directly into Gus. The next thing Gus knew, he was tackled and knocked to the ground, where he wasn't supposed to be.
7: And he got up and he clunked my head with one of those big rights. My head hit the concrete, and he started kicking me with those big grudge-covered PF flyers. He kicked me all over that schoolyard. It felt like my head had been broken apart. And every part of me hurt. Before I was out of gas, and now I was I was out of heart. And I saw this giant finger pointing at me. And it wasn't Big Jimmy's, it was Coach Lewis's. And he said, I don't think this punk likes your mother. I think I got up like a broken crab. But I got up And I went back to Big Jimmy. I went in and I started boxing him. I circled him. I stuck and moved much slower than before. But he was slowed and he had been hurt. And he wasn't used to being hurt, not by a kid. And I just kept punching him. And I knew I had to hit him with a Haymaker uppercut. And then I saw his chin. Everything I had, I put into the uppercut, and it connected. It was a little off, but it connected. i had won the fight. I knelt by Big Jimmy, and I touched his fists with mine, which said, good fight.
6: Gus was hurt, tasting the blood in his mouth, he slowly walked towards home.
7: I, I, I went up to the apartment door, walked up the steps. I rang the doorbell. Edith opened it and said, What are you doing? I haven't called for you. Go away. I said, I beat Big Jimmy. I don't care what you're saying. Get away from here or I'll... And she raised her hand to strike me, and I instinctively went into stance. Hands up, thumb at my eyebrow. She recoiled, and she said, you would raise your hands to me? Seized by the moment, I shouted at her, you not my mummy, and I ain't for you picking on no more.
0: Thanks so much to Gus Lee. Gus Lee is a courage-based leadership trainer and consultant. He's now completing his eighth book, Courage is a Verb. To find out more, go to our website, snapjudgment.org. The original score for that story was by Renzo Gorio. It was produced by Liz Mack. battle, us, but never the war. And if you missed even a moment, or you want more amazing storytelling, including live performances by Snap Judgment's queen of comedy, Jim Colbert, or the Storyteller of the Year, Don Reed, well, get you to the Snap Judgment podcast, and it's never been more important, because we, here at Snap, we have this crazy belief that it's hard, it is difficult, and not almost impossible to hate someone if you know their story. Judgment was brought to you by the team that never locks anyone in cages. Take a bow if you would. The producer, Mr. Mark Ristich. Pat Masini Miller, Anna Sussman, John Facile, Renzo Gorio, Liz Mack, Shayna Shealy. And overhead, from the Flying Trapeze, Taylor Cot, Nancy Lopez, Flo Wiley, Nika Singh, Leo Emoto, Marissa Dodge, and Lauren Newsom. And Even though this is not the news No way it's just the news In fact you could wake up on the wrong side of the bed One day Start a fight with a skinny tiny shy kid In the corner And get knocked out With a lightning uppercut for your troubles And you would still Still Not be as far away from the news As this is But this is WNYC